Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's podcast episode. I'm J.W. Marshall with MarketScale and we are very excited today to have Michael Horn online with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to be with you. And Michael is a senior strategist with Guild Education, co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute, and also an author, among many other things. Uh, but uh, if you could just start us out by uh, introducing yourself to our audience and what you're currently doing with Guild. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as you mentioned, you know, I, I joined Guild in, in May after a, a company I was one of the first folks at uh, called Entangled. I got acquired by Guild Education, and Guild's mission is basically to unlock uh, education benefits for employees at the major Fortune 1000 companies uh, across the world. And and we do that basically by working directly with employers to help them upskill and reskill and retain uh, their key employees by using education very strategically uh, to target uh, both the employee and employer needs. Uh, and so we work with a lot of different academic partners, work with companies like Walmart, Disney, Chipotle, uh, and so forth, and, and really help them drive uh, core strategic objectives through education. And, and there I support both our learning marketplace uh, partners, uh, but also our general uh, communications and, and and sort of thought leadership direction uh, ac- across the industry because we've sort of gotten to create a sector out of whole cloth in many ways around this really strategic investment uh, using education as a benefit. That's amazing. And a little more background, if you could tell our audience who might not be familiar with uh, your work co-founding the Clayton Christensen Institute. I know you were there for a long time. Yep. Um, that might be helpful to get a little background there, and then we'll dive into some questions. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I I got my start in education by accident. In 2004, I enrolled in the Harvard Business School. I had a public policy and writing background, and I was trying to escape both of those things. And I failed utterly. (laughs) Uh, I took Clay Christensen's class on disruptive innovation, and it it changed the way I saw the entire world, every industry and sector, uh, really shed a light on how to make innovation far more predictable and successful that really resonated with me. And, And literally, midway through the class in November, he just announced to the class, I have this opportunity to co-author a book with me, applying my ideas to help public education make progress. Anyone interested, stop by. <laughs> and I happened to stop by and I'll, I'll save you the whole long story. But you know, in, in short, I ended up working, writing on a public policy problem <laughs> of public schools. And we wrote the book Disrupting Class together. Uh, which came out in 2008. And midway through that experience, we started the Clayton Christensen Institute, uh, which I ran the education team there for about a decade, uh, You know, just trying to figure out how do we innovate so that every single individual can build passion, fulfill their potential, find their way in this world, uh, which was an incredibly rewarding experience running a nonprofit think tank. And, and then I left in 2015 uh, I, I well, I should say, I still do a day a week there, so I can continue to do my writing and thinking and 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 have a platform. Uh, but I left uh, to spend most of my time with Entangled, which is an education venture studio. Uh, and one of our first investments was in Guild Education, which then ironically was the one that acquired us uh, in May. You've come full circle, exactly. Uh, so so we'll let's get into the meat of what we want to talk about today, and let's start off with this: Why is it important, imperative, even to serve adult learners 
for higher ed and for employers? Yeah. So, well, since you said higher ed first, we'll start there. And, and you know, the, the situation is, is this. Higher education, colleges and universities, they're really struggling right now. Their, their expenses have been rising year over year over year. Uh, many of them are just limited in, in revenue sources. They've raised tuition a ton, and, and yet it doesn't balance out the cost. And most families do not have incomes that allow them to spend more on higher education. Government dollars in many cases have dried up, and they just are not keeping pace with the rapid cost of, in, uh, of the, the rapid increase in costs that greatly outpaces inflation. And so, you know, th- that is dried up as a source. And then on top of that, we see that there's going to be this demographic crunch coming down the pipeline. In 2025, uh, we see that the uh, traditional number of high school graduates that have traditionally gone to uh, colleges is going to start to shrink uh, because fewer people had children in the wake of the 2008 recession. And as a result of that, there's going to be far fewer students to go around for these institutions that have spent wildly on building buildings and taking out debt. Uh, over the last many years. And there's going to be just this huge crunch of not enough revenue to cover a lot of expense uh, and looking for more students. And the obvious answer in all of that equation is working adult learners, because there are millions of uh, individuals uh, in society, 88 million working adults who need upskilling or reskilling uh, to compete in the, uh, in the future of work. And uh, a great number of these students uh, have never even completed college. And so it's a tremendous opportunity for the academic institutions to be able to find new sources of students to uh, fulfill their mission, to com- uh, to allow these students to be able to upskill in, in a world in which knowledge has never been more important for individual success and to really fulfill their mission. Now, that's on the academic side of the house. On the employer side, what we've learned is that if you in, invest in your employees, it, it creates a lot of benefits both for them and for the organization. For a long time, people would worry about spending money on their employees' education because they said, oh, you know, once they have a credential that makes them more marketable, they're going to leave my company. Well, it turns out actually that students who earn a degree that is paid for by their employer are far more likely to be retained by their employer because they 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 feel this loyalty in the sense that wow you really believe in me and that you're investing in me and so it really boosts retention which for companies like a chipotle that's you know has a lot of frontline workers where churn is a real consideration that has a huge return on investment of just creating education benefits to retain their workforce now the other piece of this is really upskilling and reskilling employees to meet your strategic objectives as a company. If you look at a place like Walmart, for example, they're making a big push into healthcare. And there just simply aren't enough nurses out there in the world to be able to staff all of the clinics that they'll be opening in the years ahead. And so really that they're going to have to be on the front lines of training their current employees uh, out of works that out of jobs that maybe will be automated in the years ahead, but into those roles that they need for mission critical uh, operations to really allow them to continue to grow and be in line with their strategy. And so for so many employers where so many functions are able to be automated now, investing in your workforce creates a lot of gain. And and the last thing I would say is, you know, we've become all too painfully aware in this country over the last several months 
about the racial inequities and challenges of diversity at the top of many companies. But it turns out that if you look at the frontline employees for many companies, they are very diverse places. The challenge is that we have not been skilling those individuals up to allow them to move into management and leadership opportunities. And if employers give those individuals those opportunities to build their leadership skills through education, to build their management and business acumen, there's a huge opportunity to promote within and build the diverse ranks uh, from within the companies rather than trying to poach in a zero-sum game from other employers. That makes a whole lot of sense. And I guess the natural follow-up question would be, why have employers traditionally been late to the game in this area? It seems as though they've they've been expecting the universities to do all the work in some ways, or has uh, it been a budget issue? What has kind of been the, the, the thing holding them back? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, uh, I, I think it's a fewfold. One, in many cases, to be fair to employers, they've had programs that have provided education benefits. But if you look at the, uh, the results of those programs, they really disappoint because well under 2% of employees take advantage of the benefits that are offered. And I think a, a few key reasons for that is one, a lot of the programs have been tuition reimbursement. In other words, the employee pays for the education and then the employer pays them back. Well, for an employee who maybe is working an hourly job and has a lot of mouths to feed or is living paycheck to paycheck, that's a lot of risk to undertake uh, and cash flow out the door that they may need. And so one thing is that helping employers move to tuition assistance programs where they're paying the first dollar in essence of the program uh, is you know paying for it up front is a big switch that can really help. Uh, a second thing is that employers often haven't had the coaches uh, on the team to help their employees even navigate the benefits or figure out which educational program is right for their particular goals and really understanding uh, the individual employee. And so, you know, something at Guild that we've learned is that coaching function uh, is incredibly important. I'll, I'll name just two others. A third one is uh, having a platform that can really help with all the permissioning of who gets what benefit and what's their eligibility and what programs can they sign up for and all that stuff. It's very complicated at a company with thousands of employees. And so having a technology layer that can uh, seamlessly automate those processes and make sure that they're done correctly in line with the, the policy and strategy is important. And then the last thing is, you know, to your, to the original question where employers haven't recognized it, I think it's because they haven't been able to measure return on investment. They haven't been able to see that there is a sizable impact uh, for them investing in their workforce. Uh, you know, we 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 know that at Guild we're we're able to measure these things, and so we see that students that enroll in school through their employer are 2.7 times more likely to stay at that employer uh, than their peers. You know, that's a significant return on investment when there's a lot of cost that goes in finding and training new employees uh, when you have churn. And so, uh, you know, those sorts of ROI that we can de uh, demonstrate, I think, can start to make the case for employers, look, this is mission critical. And it's just very clear higher ed has not created new programs uh, to match the needs of the workforce with the velocity that they need to. And so employers have to play a bigger role in that process. That makes sense. And that kind of leads to my next question, depending on the 
the research you look at, uh, some surveys say up to 75% of employers don't feel that the college graduates are ready to go with the skills uh, that they need right out of the gate and they need additional training. Is that issue being addressed uh, in some ways here? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. And and, and there's sort of a, a few ways that it is, which is to say th- there's no question employers are frustrated by this. Uh, and higher ed institutions are frustrated as well because they feel like employers don't do the same level of investment uh, that they used to when uh, new employees come in, new graduates come into the workplace. But I think what we're able to do at Guild is two things. One, we're able to curate really a marketplace of academic programs so that employers can say, hey, this program from Southern New Hampshire University, which is one of our partners, really matches the type of skill sets we seek to develop in our employees. Or this program uh, you know, from, from Brandman University actually uh, hits a little bit better at our target. And so we really want to offer benefits for that. But it's very tough for employers to sort of figure that out or, or decipher which programs will yield which benefits. And we're able to intentionally curate those programs and then help guide uh, employers to to work with the right ones for their particular strategic goals. The second thing uh, that I think is important is also then giving feedback to the higher ed institutions themselves so that they can improve the programs in line with the feedback from the employers and what we see from the career trajectories of employees that go through their pr- programs. So, so just to state it clearly, you know, you have a, pro, uh, a student maybe who's working at Chipotle, they go through a management training program uh, and they do or don't make the progress you would expect them to make in Chipotle, you know, moving up the management ranks or, or whatnot. We can start to take that data, those insights from following the career trajectories of those students and give that back to the higher ed institutions in a way that actually allows them to improve the training and, and educational and learning opportunities that they provide in a way that on their own would be very hard uh, to curate that very tight feedback loop for many of these institutions. Wow. Uh, that's actually pretty groundbreaking. And I'll tell you, that's the best news I've heard all day today. So oh, good. Uh, I'm glad somebody is helping address this problem in a real tangible way that uh, is unique to Guild. Um, now I've made it uh, about 15 minutes without asking the, the question that comes up on every podcast uh, in recent weeks and months. Um, how has the pandemic changed things? Has it accelerated things? Has it uh, been kind of up and down? Uh, how has it changed the education landscape specific to what you guys are doing? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you asked the question. It's been really interesting because I think before we got acquired by Guild, when the pandemic hit and the recession resulted from it, I, I will be very honest. My expectation was, oh boy, Guild's in trouble now because employers are going to be less likely to pay for these benefits for their employees because they're going to be tightening the purse strings. They're going to be uh, going through budget cuts. Uh, They're going to be, uh, you know, retention is going to be less of an issue perhaps because, uh, you know, it's a a looser labor market, right? And so forth. And that's been the opposite of our experience actually uh, at at Guild. Uh, Our employers uh, uh, have uh, amped up their support for their employees. Guild is now supporting 25% more students uh, since March than than we were uh, active students, and so you know that's a that that's a big increase and a big statement and a really tough time. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but one is, you know, the employers really see the value, the strategic value at a strategic inflection point for them right now in their business, of really investing in it, and and employers 
you know, when when budget cuts hit and and recessions are in, are are in place, you know, you cut back on what doesn't work and you double down on what does. And because we can show a demonstrable return on investment, uh, employers receive, you know. Uh, on average, basically two dollars forty-four cents back for every dollar that they invest uh, in in their employer employees' education. That's a tangible benefit, right? And so they're doubling down on that to get that return on investment in a really tough time. I think the other thing we see uh, is that employers are are realizing this is a key benefit that we've extended our to our employees. If we pull that back right now, that's in some sense upending. The social contract, right, that we've created with our employees, and a key reason that they've stuck with us, and for all the good and the brand positive things that occur when you invest in your workforce, if you take something away like that, that is so strategic, not just to your company but also the employees that work there, uh, that can really undermine, uh, you know, what you're doing. And so I think I think the fact that we've seen this increase in COVID is a real testament uh, to the value that. Uh, you know, we see employers see academic institutions see for investing in working adult learners. That's great, and we like to say at Market Scale that education is undefeated. You usually can't go wrong with investing in education at, at whatever level. Yep. Um, related to that, what would be uh, some pros and cons as far as uh, employers working to get their employees? into universities, community colleges, uh, upskilling opportunities uh, versus building their own programs. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a versus one or the other, but on kind of both sides, what are the, the positives and the negatives? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and I think in some cases, look, you're going to see companies like Amazon realize that the pace of change in their workforce is such that uh, a lot of higher ed institutions are not able to keep up with those that rate of change, right? And that they are going to have to integrate backwards so that they can build the programs themselves that match these needs that they have that in some cases are at the frontier of knowledge, right? Faculty maybe don't, haven't researched these things. And so they can't build programs that actually match that. And, and higher ed is sometimes slow to develop new programs uh, not because they don't want to, but there's a whole set of regulations, accreditors, Department of Education, state approval that they need to go through before they can even offer it. And so there can be you know, significant lags sometimes uh, from the idea of a new program to getting it out into the marketplace. And so in those cases, I think there is an advantage for employers to think about how do we offer this education and training ourselves uh, or create a deeper partnership with maybe a startup provider or a coding bootcamp or a company like Pathstream that, you know, offers uh, platform-centric skills learning for on, on things like Salesforce and Facebook, digital marketing and things of that nature, a direct partnership with a player like that uh, or a direct build themselves can make a lot of sense. Now, the downside of doing that, obviously, is that they often don't have the instructional design expertise in-house. They don't have the learning uh, design expertise to build really robust learning experiences, nor do most employers um, necessarily have the scale across any one function that justifies the expense. But if you work with uh, an academic institution that can spread this learning out across a lot of different places and you as the, ac you as the employer can basically just add a little tailoring, if you will, right, uh, to the end experience, then working with a third-party partner can be tremendously valuable, particularly when you find one that's really attuned to the working adult learner, to the needs of the employer, and is motivated to stay in lockstep uh, 
with those needs. And in which case it's really cultivating those relationships so you, that you can get the benefits uh, that an academic partner uh, brings to the table. And so those are sort of how I see the, 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 the pros and cons. I think a big piece of this is you want some choice and flexibility and optionality uh, in that and not put all your eggs in one basket uh, because for different types of problems, different solutions are going to make sense. And, you know, I think having an academic marketplace from providers, you can, you can pick and choose depending on your strategic objectives. That is certainly helpful. Uh, and then also figuring out, Hey, where were you? Certain things is going to make sense to build it ourselves because it's just too unpredictably interdependent with our core operations for us to outsource something at this stage. That makes perfect sense. That's the classic build versus buy, and, and those are some great guidelines. Um, and, and specifically, I was kind of looking at the recent news for Ernst & Young uh, announcing their first ever virtual corporate MBA uh, that they're offering for free to all of their people. Uh, I believe it's with uh, Holt um, University. Uh, do you see that as a future trend, or are there going to be a lot of eyes on this to see you know, kind of how it works? You know, it's interesting. Uh, about 20... 20, 30 years ago, a lot of corporations started creating corporate universities to do this sort of a thing. Uh, and actually, I'm glad you asked the question because it reminded me of the, the the one thing corporate universities didn't do, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to in a moment. But you had Motorola University, GE, Crotonville, right, doing management training and the like. And um, in, in many ways, it was that trend was disruptive, if you will, relative to executive education uh, at at, at uh, business school programs uh, in, in many cases. But the challenge, I think, is a couplefold. One, you know, offering your own education, it can be super tailored to, uh, to, to your business case and so forth. The, the challenge is, though, uh, it might not be the expertise that you have on an ongoing basis, and you might not be able to do it as cost-effectively once the knowledge and skills uh, become better understood such that they can be built in the marketplace, you know, by someone that actually does this on a regular basis. But the other piece of it, and I think this is important about the Ernst & Young announcement with Holt, which is having a recognizable degree in the marketplace from an accredited provider for whatever you might say about the faults of accreditation and so forth. And, and I'm out on the record of saying that there's many, uh, it does, you know, if, if you give someone a credential that can stack into a degree, that is giving your employee a marketable credential that has significant value beyond the internal training that only is understood by the, you know, the employer you're currently at. And so at the top end of the spectrum, you know, training management and leadership, that, you know, the degree might not be that important a signal because, your job function will stand on its own as as sort of on your resume, right? But for a frontline worker who's really trying to accumulate meaningful experiences that they can brand themselves with to advance in their career, having that external validation that that a degree or an externally recognized certificate connote can be incredibly valuable and an incredibly important, not just perk for its own sake, but but a real way to commit to helping your employees. Uh, create more opportunity and upskill over time, and so uh, I, I think that's you know that that that's another piece of this, which is Ernst and Young made a specific program, but they're doing it in partnership with an academic provider, uh, which I think makes a ton of a sense because they're going to sort of get the best of both worlds. Is my is my sense? Yeah, and, and it seems like pre-pandemic um, 
colleges and universities may not have been as open to those kind of partnerships, but in the uh, post-pandemic world, uh, it seems like everyone is kind of rethinking everything, and there's a lot of opportunities that are exciting uh, that are coming out of that, uh, kind of a silver lining. Of course, we wish it was under different circumstances. Um, you, you mentioned skill building and upskilling, and I want to touch on that for a moment around um, the, the surge in micro-credentials mm-hmm. and um, you know, the thought process that it's not just about passing a test and knowing something, but can you perform those skills? Uh, what do you see as the, the kind of emerging trends there? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with the, the emergence of badges and micro-credentials and so forth. In the beginning, it was just a flurry of all these different things by all different names with not even a test behind it (laughs) to verify that you could actually do what it said you were doing. And so it just became another measure of seat time, which is, you know, you sat through a course, you got to the end of it, and then all of a sudden a badge appeared on your LinkedIn profile or resume around, you know, whatever skill set you name. And, And the problem with that is there's no verification that you actually learned anything in that process or that you can now do something that is portable and and useful in the, in, in the world of work. And so, I think we've seen a trend start to move in that direction, uh, as you said, not just to assess learning, but to do that, but also have those assessments be focused around uh, the accumulation of artifacts, right, of, of, of knowledge and skills and application of those things in the workforce through projects and the like. And, and I think this sort of sense of building a portfolio of skills, and it's something that the coding boot camps in particular have, have spent a great deal of time on is... You know, in showing employers that an employee has has actually mastered something, let's actually just show them real projects that they have completed that are analogous to the sorts of things that they would be asked to do once they're employed to actually prove that they can now do these things and they've built up a portfolio that that actually shows what they know and can do, as opposed to just sort of uh, please believe us that this credential that we just made up <laughs> has any real value in the labor market. I, I, I think that, you know, having a verification behind it is incredibly important for these to have any value whatsoever. And it's probably going to also be important. You know, a lot of people are fond of saying the end of the degree, let's disrupt it with micro credentials. Maybe that comes about, but it's just a heck of a lot easier if those credentials stack into something that together is a degree so that it's even more readily understood by the market in a language that the market speaks. Absolutely makes sense. And kind of shifting back towards the the colleges and the universities, uh, if you could kind of put your get your crystal ball out for a second. Uh, obviously, they're undergoing a huge change with digital trans- transitions and finding that new balance. Where do you think we're going to end up? Uh, there's been a lot of talk around, do we really need 4,000 plus uh, higher ed institutions? Will there be some shifting, some merging, um, some of the schools becoming more specialized? Um, what, what's your hot take on where this could be going for higher ed? Yeah, look, I mean, Clay Christensen and I are famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, <laughs> uh, for saying that a quarter of schools will close, merge, or declare higher ed's version of bankruptcy over the next a couple of decades, I, my sense is obviously the pandemic has accelerated that. And uh, you're going to see a lot of institutions. Some people have estimated as high as 350 institutions that will close or merge uh, in the next 12 months or so because of this pandemic and, and the recession that has resulted. I, I don't know if it's going to be that aggressive or not, but I do think 
uh, you know, it's clear that you're going to see a lot of merger activity, a lot of reinvention, a, a lot of closures. And my sense is that in the long run, we will have fewer accredited institutions of higher education serving more students, actually, because they will get better at serving working adult learners. And this new population that needs learning, not just, um, you know, once or twice in their life to get one degree, but on a continuous basis, really is as just the lifeblood of work. It's part of their work stream of constantly upskilling. And those institutions that succeed and thrive will be the ones that represent and figure out ways to serve them with their employers uh, and with the gig economy in an ongoing uh, and constant way. And so that, that that's my expectation. Fewer institutions serving more students in the long run be better off for everyone. And and I've read that recently as well that uh, the idea of the lifetime membership to a university that it's not just undergrad, not just an MBA, but uh, ongoing. Now what that will look like, we'll see. But I like that idea of uh, kind of lifelong learning is preached by every university, but not always kind of uh, delivered. All right, last question, and then we'll let you go. Um, a lot of our business leaders out there listening today uh, are probably pretty interested in in learning more about Guild and what you guys do. What would be the, the key considerations um, and what would be the kind of the process? What would that look like for our, our listeners? Yeah, well, look, you know, Guild Education, check us out on the web, right? And uh, we'd love to talk to you. Uh, we, we, we love to have conversations directly uh, with, we, with the C-level folks uh, at an employer that are, are interested in trying to upskill and, and retain their employees through education. Uh, and that conversation is consultative where we're trying to figure out what are your strategic objectives? What are, what's the real pain points in your business model? We're investing in your human capital, which, you know, I, ironically, human capital is like one of the most valuable parts of any business. And it doesn't show up anywhere on the balance sheet except as an expense. But it's a huge asset uh, that investing in makes a heck of a lot of sense. And so, but there's lots of different ways to invest in it. And so it's a conversation on the guild side to figure out what are your strategic objectives? If this makes sense as something you're going to invest in, how do you design the program? Who's going to be eligible for it? And out of our marketplace of academic providers, both accredited universities as well as uh, unaccredited uh, providers that focus on particular skills, what's the right mix for you that will help you accomplish that? And uh, designing that together is a real solution, uh, you know, solutioning process that 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 we work through to to make sure it's a strategic fit for everyone. Perfect, and that wraps up our time. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, you all facilitating these conversations. Absolutely, and to our listeners out there, thank you for joining us as well. And always keep learning. 